Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. This is where we look at sitcoms from the British past and then put them into a kind of contextual history of when they were made, both in terms of TV and in terms of British cultural history. My name is Alan and joining me as always is Gareth. Hello! Gareth, this week we are looking at an all-time classic, uh, Steptoe and Son. Steptoe and Son, yeah. I, I, this is the one of the original and best British sitcoms, isn't it? Where, where does it sit in that sort of early history of British sitcoms? Well, yeah, it is. It is very early. 1962 it started. But sitcom had had a previous history on radio, of course. In the Golden Simpson, the writers of Steptoe and Son, they started in radio. Well, today we're talking about the um, well, we're talking about the specific episode "Crossed Swords," which is in series four. But um, you know, as part of this, I watched the the pilot, the first episode of Steptoe and Son, and to me, that had a real feeling of just a two handed play about it. That could have been on the stage. It could have been on the radio. You know, it was very yeah. Uh, it was not televisual. I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Definitely, and I, I think that derives from Golden Simpson writing for the radio for mm. so many years. And also, just their style in general is quite focused on character-driven stuff. And this is its strength, I think, and this is why it's really lasted over the years, is how often it's character-driven. How often it's just these two characters having to deal with each other. And we're going to see a lot of classic things that we see in sitcoms. But Mm -hmm. to be honest with you, this is something that you don't get that often anymore. That's the thing that I noticed, that obviously the interplay between the two main characters is crucial in any drama, but there are just no other characters. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll make, you know it's not that there are no other human beings involved, but, but essentially there are no other regulars. There are no wives no. and there are no work colleagues. It's a, very, it's a very small world. And I think even back then that wasn't really common. I mean, you got, like, if you want to use the rag trade as a, as a good contemporary you know, it's set in a factory. There's about half a dozen regular sort of factory workers mm. there, plus the foreman, plus the boss. I guess it's too, it's it's not possible to go. Well, this is normal sitcom, and this is slightly different. But certainly, yeah. this is not regular anymore, and it, that takes a bit of that takes a lot of writing. <laughs> I think that's it's more difficult to write yeah. that stuff, basically. Yeah. Well, shall we talk a little bit about Galton and Simpson then? Because they're very famous names in in this world. And obviously we've said yeah. they did Hancock and, and Steptoe. I suppose they're their two biggest hits, aren't they? Oh, by far, yeah. Um, it's an interesting ga- uh, backstory to Galton and Simpson because they just met when they were young lads. They both um, ended up in a sanatorium because they had TB, and tuberculosis, which mm-hmm. is in the 40s. When that was a thing, which is weird. Yeah, they would just be they would just be sort of taken away. I, I remember talking to my dad about this. My dad was born in 1950, and he said that when when kids would just sort of disappear from school, like you know they'd, they'd have a cough and then they'd disappear for months, and they were you know they were they were taken off and put into a sanatorium. Which I don't know sanatorium. It's one of those sort of medical type words, and you just think of a hospital, but it, essentially it's it's just it's quarantine. It's it's just somewhere where they take them, and then they would either get better or they would die. Am I right? It's basically cured by antibiotics, and that's why it's just not a really a problem. Yeah. For... yeah, essentially, that's how we treat it now. Well, we have we have inoculation as well. So you know, in 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 Britain, they come round and they sort of stick those needles in your arm, and and if they if if you have a reaction, then you're naturally yeah. immune. Which I was. Yeah, it was like I'm a little circle delighted. of needles, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I was absolutely delighted that 
I didn't have to have the full injection. But nevertheless, I, I, that's all well and good having inoculation and having antibiotics, but not if you're, um, you know, not if you're in a village in Malawi or something. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, across the developing world, it kills lots and lots of people. My my knowledge now of uh, TB clinics in the forties is <laughs> from a sitcom called Get Well Soon, which I watched because <laughs> it's it's written by Ray Golton. <laughs> based on their experiences. Oh, wow. In the, oh, well done for bringing it back to sitcoms as well, but <laughs> tell, me, tell me more about that. that, that well, I, I only really discovered this when I was researching this. Uh, so basically what happened was Galton and Simpson were, you know, 17, 18 years old in this sanatorium and kind of clocked on with each other because they were, you know, the same age and they found they got on and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, it's and, it, and this is, again, it's kind of this real kind of, obviously it was just post-war, but this kind of wartime spirit, you know, some of the patients who had engineering knowledge got together to create a, a radio system that worked around the <laughs> hospital to create a, like a hospital radio. They built it yeah. all themselves. So these two lads, Galton and Simpson, they get themselves on the radio council council to represent the young people right. and <laughs> and then start doing shows. And then eventually started do, uh, they sort of said, oh, we don't have any dramas or comedies. And they're like, well, someone's got to write them if we want to do them. And so they they wrote them and they wrote these wow. they wrote sketches they wrote these little sort of episodes and things and you know and that's how they started. I've often wondered about I, I've heard of hospital radio before. I think it used to be a thing, and uh, I was probably not anymore. But um, their Wi-Fi now. But um, <laughs> th- th- I think a lot of a lot of sort of Radio One type DJs got their start mm. in hospital radio as well. So that's that's interesting that as well as just playing music, they would put on plays and all sorts of things. That's great. Well, I, I, like a, this was very much like a community effort thing. I, I'm not mm. sure how kind of formalised it was. You're making me think of Colditz. It sounds like a prisoner war camp. Yeah, I guess it has that kind of feel to it. And like I said, there have been plenty of, you know, this is in the late 40s. There have been plenty of former soldiers and stuff in there. Sure. And that is in the sitcom that they, they wrote about it as well. You know, one of the one of the regular, other regular characters is a... An RAF officer who's still kind of in his head is still, you know, in the war. It's hilarious. Uh, PTSD <laughs> played for laughs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so this sitcom called Get Well Soon, it was written in 1997. Now, Alan Simpson had retired by that point. So it was actually written by Ray Galton and John Antrobus, who is another writer. It's kind of contemporary oh, right, of theirs, yeah. way f- yeah. from way back. I used to write for like Spike Milligan, Eric Sykes, stuff okay. like that. So they got together to write it. And then judging from interviews that I've heard with Simpson and Galton, there's obviously quite a lot of their experiences in there, just in terms of people they've talked about, things mm-hmm. that they did, like like the fact that this this hospital radio was, you know, a linen cupboard that they kind of cleared out and put all the radio gear in there. Like that happens in the show. And there's lots of obviously real uh, counterparts there, although how much of it is then exaggerated is, is another matter. You could, while you're in bed, lying there, write a comedy spot for us. No, I don't feel funny. You don't have to feel funny to write comedy. You don't have to go around with a red nose and a revolving bow tie. Updike does. Yeah, yeah, but he's a doctor. <laughs> he's compensating. He's embarrassed because he can't cure us. <laughs> yeah, they can kill us, but they can't cure us. But yeah, it wasn't a successful sitcom. It was in, made in 1997. 97 or 60? Yeah, 97, yeah. And set in 47, so it's it was a real period piece, you know. And maybe people in the 90s just weren't ready for a 1940s sanatorium set. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty niche. <laughs> but it, it starred uh, Matthew Cottle, who uh, you might not know the name, but he's in Game he's, On. Yeah, he's Game the ginger on, one in Game yeah. On, yeah. yeah. And this was a, Game On was already on at that point. He was known for that. He's basically exactly the same. 
he plays the kind of Ray Golden character. And then the other guy playing the, a, a kind of Alan Simpson take is Hollywood star Eddie Marsan. Really? Oh, uh, fascinating. Like, yeah, obviously quite yeah, an early Eddie Marsan, thing. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so... You know, I watched the whole thing because it's only six episodes because it didn't, it didn't, wasn't very successful. It, it, there's nothing special about it. It's actually not bad, but it's certainly not good. The stuff with those two works quite nicely, and then, mm. but then there's all this other stuff with his mother, and uh, she's like seeing this other fella, and I don't know, it doesn't quite work. And Hugh Bonneville's in it. A young Hugh Bonneville is okay. a regular character. Hello, listener. This is Alan from the future, just chipping in to let you know that I actually got a bit more into Get Well Soon, and I've done a video on our YouTube channel, which uh, goes into a full analysis and review of the entire show. So if you're interested, go and watch that. Our YouTube channel is British Sitcom History. And we have all sorts of other things up there as well, including the podcast. You can get that on the YouTube channel if that's easier for you. So go and check that out as well. Okay, back to the show. So that's interesting because because I I never I'd never heard of that at all. So 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 my question a minute ago about what what else did Galton and Simpson do Hancock and, and Steptoe? <laughs> obviously that was very much the high watermark. So yeah, so was there not a lot else because nineteen ninety seven that's really late. I was surprised about that. Oh yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, they much older guys by then. Uh, um, well, uh, let me go back to where they where they were at the time. So okay. they got out of the sanatorium, got back to their real lives and sort of working jobs and, and stuff like that, stayed in touch. And then they they were still trying to write stuff together. So they sent what was essentially a, a fan letter to Frank Muir and Dennis Norden, who were <laughs> top comedy writers of the time, sure. uh, saying, hey, we like your writing. We're writers. Wanna Can we come and work for you? And they got a sort of polite letter back saying no. Uh, but if you want, <laughs> why don't you? If you've got any scripts, send them to this address. This is the yeah. BBC's light entertainment section, uh-huh. uh, and a guy called Gail Pedrick, who who was a, a writer for the BBC, and he kind of was the one who decided what went on. And so they sent some stuff to him, and he wrote back, basically saying, "I like your stuff. Let's see what you've got." And that's how their career started. And that's it. They were in. They started writing stuff, and it was good enough that they got used. Well, yeah, so they started writing on general radio uh, radio stuff, including, I think, one of them was Educating Archie, which star- starred, it didn't start, it guested Tony Hancock. So then when Hancock got his own show, they would write, They wrote that. And that and that was very much, they wrote Hancock's, uh, Hancock's yeah. Half Hour for radio. It was them. And, and sure. that seemed to be the magic, you know, them and Hancock. And, uh, they, they clicked. So, yeah, after a decade working together, Hancock was becoming increasingly frustrated. And he was like, look, lads, I think it's time for us to move apart. I want to go and do this. And it wasn't It wasn't that they had a massive fallout then? No, I got the sense, certainly from listening to interviews with them, that it was like, you know, we'll work together again one day. He just needs to go mm-hmm. off and kind of do his own thing. And that never happened. But uh, And then Hancock went off and tried to do his own thing and just... It wasn't successful, and then he tried to do something else, and that wasn't successful, yeah. and and then kind of he spiraled, and as a course of that, started drinking more, and so obviously that just exacerbates itself. And well, I guess to complete the Hancock story, because we'll probably never kind of deal with him again. Yeah, he he ended up killing himself. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty young man, he was only forty four, I think. Yeah, yeah. So the head of uh, BBC Light Entertainment at that time just started was a guy called Tom Sloan, and. His first job was to keep Hancock 
uh, at the BBC, and he failed because the ITV offered him lots more money, and he went off and did yeah. that. Didn't work out for him, but you know. So Tom Sloan is all of a sudden like, I need to make a success of this. Yeah. So he goes to Goldman Simpson, and he says, he says, look, I've got this idea. It's called Comedy Playhouse. Mm-hmm. Ten shows. You're gonna write them. Ten. Just give me ten shows. I don't care what you do, what it is. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want, but give me ten shows. And you know that's what they did. So one of them, episode four, is called The Offer, and it's about mm-hmm. a rag and bone man and well, a rag and bone father and son team. Yeah. And Wilfred Bramble and Harry Cobbett at the time were high-jobbing actors. Essentially, Wilfred Bramble was born in, born in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would never guess. Uh, to listen to his voice. He, yeah, he wasn't just born in Ireland, he was Irish, wasn't he? he yeah, yeah, up yeah. in Ireland, yeah. yeah. Born and raised in Dublin, uh, came to England as a young man, and joined rep, proper old school actor, you know, joined But would rep that be, just... like, you know, the thing about Wilfred Bramble is when it, when you hear him interviewed, he obviously doesn't sound like Harold. He, you know, he, sound, he, sound, he sounds quite posh, quite, um, like, an affected um, oh, accent. Yeah. Thank you very much, everybody. And uh, I'd like to say thanks to him too. Because not only is he a terrific chap to work with, but uh, he's, he's almost shoved to be the son out of the business. <laughs> Over to you, Harold. But that is affected, isn't it? And I think that's the, that's, everybody did that, whether you were from Newcastle or Dublin. As, as an actor, as a thespian, yeah. you, you had to sort of affect that accent, didn't you? But yeah, even in his general everyday life, it seems he had this sort of very classic RP accent. But yeah, he, uh, yeah. So his background was rep theatre. You know, you churn them out, you get them done. Yeah, and and that's it really. And he's done a few, some TV appearances here and there. An established character actor, but also famous for playing. You know, fifteen, twenty years older than he actually was. Yeah, which was just based on appearances, I guess. I looked that up when when we were watching when I watched this the offer that this effectively the first episode of Steptoe. He's only four years older than me. And he already looks like old man Steptoe, you know. Albeit this yeah, is the yeah. first series and that we're doing it for another more than ten years. But but yeah, he already looks like an old man. Yeah, he was 50 years old when the show started, yeah. 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 Uh, and, and the character's supposed to be... Well, in the series two, he has his 65th birthday. So I guess he's supposed to be mid-60s. Uh, yeah, and that's what he made a living off. And, you know, he got the the bad dentures in, you know, the mm-hmm. rotten dentures and all yeah. that. You know, you can exaggerate it. But Wilfred Bramble in real life was quite a dandy he was you know he liked the, he liked shiny things and, and fancy colorful clothes and things like that so very different to him <laughs> as a yeah. real person yeah and and when when a person is so identified with a single character like that it is easy to forget that and you see pictures of him and, and hear him speak and stuff and it's so different so presumably this you know this series of 10 comedy playhouses plowhouses was um for him it was just another job it was just another tv play that you would do once and then move on yeah exactly and a nice job you know it was a good script yeah yeah and a really good part can i ask you before we before we get deeper into that because i want to talk a little bit about the offer that 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 was effectively the pilot Mm -hmm. do do you know what were the other nine and what what did you know have you seen any of those None of them survive. Uh, no, ah, so that's no. interesting. Uh, so they're not even they're not even copies of them. I'm just thinking, you know, we're obviously talking a lot about sitcoms. That's our that's what, what that's our meat and drink. But I'm just thinking about something like Inside Number Nine at the moment, which is yeah. different characters every week. And I suppose that's the well, that's rep, isn't it? That's 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 what it, what it is. Yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of comedy playhouse, it it was different actors each time. They're all right. kind of separately okay. produced 
things. Yeah. I think Wilfred Bramble might be in one of the others, but in a smaller role, sure. you know. But I think that was a lot more common. That sort of thing was a lot more common. Not just co- comedy, but drama. Just, just little one-off plays. I think yeah. it was a lot more common yeah, than Yeah, I think now. so, yeah. I mean, Comedy Playhouse went on for several years. Gotten Simpson wrote another series, but then they, they carried it on with other writers. Mm-hmm. And lots of sitcoms, and probably some we'll be dealing with in the future, came from a Comedy Playhouse pilot. But then you've also got classic th- things like... Um, you know, Ronnie Barker did a six-part series where it's six different shows, but it's just yeah. him and different characters. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, but Steve Coogan did it in, in the 90s. I did. Coogan's Gosh, Run, yes. it was called. I remember those really well, yes. That was that was my era. To early 2000s, Peter Kay, that Peter Kay thing was six separate yes, stories. that's what Phoenix Knights came out of. Exactly. So yeah. there is yeah, still a tradition of that. I can't think of anything more recent than that, but to be fair, I I don't really keep up to date with stuff well, like uh, anything from that came to mind, which before, is not 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 comedy, but but it's making me think of Black Mirror as well, which is a sort of yeah anthology stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, that's no, not that's not comedic. Well, let's let's shall we talk about the the offer that this first episode yeah. of Step Two and Son. Uh, perhaps the immediate thing, if you're if you're going to this with a modern take on sitcom, the immediate thing you'll notice is it's. It's really quite tragic. <laughs> like it's, it, it's sad, yeah. Yeah, there's it's, real it's... pathos to it. You've made up your mind, have you? Yes, I have. I've got a full life in front of me. I could have been a comedy director by now. But you held me back all these years. You and that rotten horse in the cart, keeping me all the time back. Well, I'm breaking away, see? I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm going to make me mark, and you ain't going to stop me. Believe me, mate, Errol Steptoe's going up. And that is something that they do hold on to throughout Steptoe and Son, and mm. certainly episodes that are much more just straightforward sitcom. But it is something that keeps recurring, and that dynamic between the two, and the fact that they're trapped together, or really the fact that Harold is trapped there. He's trapped with Albert. Albert yeah. doesn't care that he's trapped there. He's happy with his lot. No, but Albert's terrified of, of Harold leaving him. That's, yes. uh, that's, that's an existential dread for him. You know, he... You know, he, he he, you know, he fakes this. He's always faking. Oh, my heart! You know, he, like as if he's yeah, going to yeah, die. You yeah. can't leave me, Harold. But but, <laughs> but he can't. You know, he can't imagine being left on his own. And and you know, already I'm thinking, oh God, what's the story with the mum? You know, she obviously died some time ago. Hmm. And he's obviously a very lonely old man as well. I, I suppose we're we're supposed to see it through Harold's eyes, and you know, he's stuck with this dirty old man. But yeah. but I think Albert's a really tragic figure as well. It's awful. It's a really sad <laughs> half hour of television. <laughs> but it is funny as well, and that's yeah, that's the yeah, beauty it of it. That's it the balance. I think that, I think there's a lot of humour that comes out of of Harold's pretension. Whereas Albert knows who what he is. He knows who he yeah. is, and he knows he'll he'll this is his life, and he'll be here forever. Uh, Harold's desperation to get out. It, it, like some of the some of the dialogue, you know, when they're talking about the. Like, uh, he, he says he's found a Ming vase. Oh, imagine it, Imagine thinking it was a Tang vase, you silly old fool. <laughs> you know, as if he knows what the difference is between yeah. a Ming and a Tang vase. You know, but he's got mm-hmm. that pretension. He really wants to be cultured. He wants to be something more than he is. Yeah, and do you know why I think it really works in general? Is because it's sincere. Pretension seems negative somehow. It, he really wants to better himself. Yes. And I think That's makes right. genuine efforts to do so. Like he reads about things and he learns about things, but he's just out of his depth mm. and also has this huge anchor like holding him back. Yeah. But I think that's why it never plays as he's the fool. I think we're always on his side. We, we kind of want him to be a success. Mm. Yeah. But then at the same time with Albert, we do also, like he 
it's not that he knows his place. Oh, well, this is where I have to stay. It's, he's happy with his lot. <laughs> and you can argue that why would you be happy with that life? But he is. I think that's important throughout this long run of mm. 12 years it ran for, that it doesn't just become sad. Yeah. That, that balance of tragedy and comedy has to be there. That's and I think... I think it's something it does suffer from in the later years. I, I was just going to ask that because my just just let's talk about my memory of Steptoe and Son. I'm I, I was born in 1975, so you know after mm. this had finished, but I do remember it. But as I was watching these couple of episodes for this, I I hadn't seen them before, so it's obviously not something I've seen every episode of. And yeah. I actually wondered to myself, was it repeated? Have I seen this? Have I just seen the films on telly and I'm just remembering? Those as as a as as more. I I don't know. I, I as I say, I think Steptoe and Son are deeply embedded in our culture, and we all know the tropes and the the catchphrases. But I'm not sure I've seen that much of it in terms mm. of full episodes. Yeah, and I think that's probably pretty typical of your most casual viewers. Yeah. So in the late sixties and early seventies, the BBC had a policy of wiping tapes mm. to reuse them or whatever. And so there's so much stuff that's lost yeah. to, the, to the sands of time. And, and Steptoe and Son would fall into that category were it not for the fact that Galton and Simpson got an engineer to basically make them a copy for their personal oh, archives. Right. And that's basically why we have all the episodes of Steptoe and Son still surviving. But the, but the weird thing about that is, obviously, yeah, they wiped all this stuff and then years later people go, oh, we want to see that again. We want this kind of history. But with Steptoe and Son, it was such a big success. Like, even the first series was such a success that they immediately repeated it, mm. um, which was unusual at the time. Like, they just, the BBC ran a six, six week thing and then were like, that was great. Let's just play it again. <laughs> so, obviously, the BBC recognized the value of repeats. Yeah. So, why then wipe stuff? I mean, even if it's 10 years later, mm. he, there's, no, there's obviously no concept of home video and DVD and stuff like that. I don't, I'm not quite sure when it's when it was a show that was such a big success. How how that decision gets made? Like the people people bemoan um, bemoan that they've lost all those early episodes of Top of the Pops, but yeah. but Top of the Pops is by its nature quite disposable. You know, it's every week and it's just some some more music. And yes, it would be lovely to yeah. see those old episodes. But I understand the thought process. Yeah. You know, we well we got this week's music now. We'll forget last week. Yeah. But but I agree with you. Particularly something that was so successful. Let's record over it. I mean, how short of tape were they? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But so, so we've got all these episodes, but very poor quality. Watchable, frankly. And obviously because of the cultural value of this and also the financial value of being able to put it on DVD, they've gone to the effort of cleaning it up as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But also the first four series were done in black and white. The second uh, chunk of four series were done in colour. However, yeah. series five and six do not, exist in color anymore they only they were recorded as black and white things i see so series seven and eight were color so those got repeated a lot more than the rest when i was a kid late 70s early 80s the only black and white telly were american films like john wayne films that sort of thing mm. everything else was in color i think i have no memory of watching black and white repeats my question is that in the 70s when color became a thing was there a, a, a policy or at least a trend to just say black and white is old fashioned? We don't want to show that. Basically, yeah. And certainly, certainly by the time I was watching telly, I think that would have been the case. And like the same, similar with Dad's Army, you know, that went color mm, kind of halfway yeah. through its run. And but yeah, basically, it was just not cool to be black and white, so you don't do it. 
so we've now got these established characters and clearly they decided they're going to make a series of it. So yeah, uh, Tom Sloan, the head of Light Entertainment, uh, he says, guys, this is a series. We've got to make a series of this. Golden Simpson went, no, we we don't want to do a series. So eventually they agreed because they knew that Harry H. Cobb and Wilfred Bramble wouldn't do a series. You know, the money's not good enough. They've got stage careers going on and all that. (laughs) They were paid 90 guineas for this, uh, the pilot. Standard kind of drama rates. But then Tom Tom Sloan got in touch with them and, and paid them on light entertainment rates, which as for oh, a series, for whatever reason, it was significantly, like several times more. Yeah. And so obviously they were jumped at the chance. So then Golden Simpson were like trapped <laughs> into the, making a series. <laughs> so uh, that's how it came about, really. Yeah, money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, you're a jobbing actor. Nice regular bit of money for a, for a six-week job, essentially. You know, they did six episodes. You, you rehearse and then record at the end of the week. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's actually quite a short run if you're used to doing touring and stuff. So, yeah, show is instantly popular. Regularly over 20 million viewers. It peaked at 28 million viewers. Well, it's interesting because as we, as we do more of these episodes and we can compare audience numbers, obviously they yeah. mean something different back then to what, they, to what they would now. Yeah, only two um, channels. Yeah. But, but tw- so, so put that 28 million into context. You know, who, how many people are watching the news? How many people are watching, I don't know, Coronation Street? Oh, it was the most watched thing. Right. Okay. At the time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, even Coronation Street would get over 20 million views at its height. Yeah, and that was much more regular, I suppose. But but yeah, I mean, what, what's the population of Britain? <laughs> yeah, about 50 million then, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that really does give you a sense of, of, mm. of just how popular it was. And that's why it's embedded into the culture. Like, you know, a couple of years ago, everybody was talking about Game of Thrones, but they weren't. Mm. Just people on Twitter and in the Guardian were talking about Game of Thrones. Like only <laughs> only half a million people watch it, whereas this was literally everybody. Yeah, I mean, and it was it was a different time for TV, and it's also interesting in terms of how that affects our response to culture because this is a working class people on TV, mm. and so obviously, twenty eight million people watching. A lot of those people are working class. Yeah, and this was still at the time pretty new to have working class people on television, and using vernacular and, and working-class slang yes. uh, that, that really is played for laughs a lot of the time. But also, it's it doesn't feel forced when you watch it. It, it feels like they're just this is their natural kind of form of dialogue I, between each other. I noticed that. There was a lot of, a lot of rhyming slang, a lot of, um, sort of dialect. And, and it, it always got laughs. The, the studio audience were, yeah. found it hilarious when he said he was going to Kazi. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but my question is... Would people have used those words or was that, was it like, you know, when you watch Danny Dyer and he's making up his silly words? <laughs> Danny Dyer is a fabulous comic creation. I don't, I don't know. Is it, is it Steve Coogan who does him? I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, I find him genuinely funny. He's a, he's, a, yeah. he's a funny character. My question is, when people were watching Step 2 and Some, were they thinking, oh God, with their funny dialogue? Or were they just thinking, oh yeah, that's the sort of thing I would say. It's nice to see it on the telly. I think... You've got working class people who recognise that, but those, even that, you know, slang is very dialectical. It's very stuck in an area. This was Cockney yeah. slang. Yeah. So I don't know if you're from the north, you're seeing that it's going to have quite the same meaning. But if you're like middle class, you know, home counties kind of chap, it's going to be the other. It's the comedy of the mm-hmm. other, I suppose. And it's like, oh, yes, I remember the plumber came down and he said he was going to yeah. fix the cars. Yeah, it was hilarious. Do you think there is an element of 
you know, this, this idea of looking down on people. Even working class people might have looked at the rag and bone manners beneath them. And so it was all right to have a little bit of a laugh at them. That's interesting. Uh, and, and the fact that they are rag and bone men, I think, is very significant. And and not just that, but that, you know, they've got a horse and cart. They've got an outdoor mm. toilet. I mean, was that anachronistic even for 1962? Was that considered kind of quite low class even then? I think that the, yeah, I think, yeah, I... The, the rag and bone man was seen as someone who sort of came in from the outside. They were you know, often they were actually rag and bone men were actually from sort of gypsy traveling communities. Yeah. yeah. Um, but although in, in our case here, of course, Steptoe and Son have a, a yard, they they're going out into into West London and you know they're trying to find trying to find whatever they can find, whatever they can scavenge. But but within those communities, the rag and bone men would, would be seen as an outsider, someone who turned up from time to time. They weren't yeah. part of the community. They were separate. And that, that's what I mean about this idea of a rag and bone man being other. It's okay to laugh at them. They're not, they're not one of us, if, if you yeah. see what I mean. And th- maybe that's part of why Harold's so desperate to, to, to be part of something else, to be part of a community rather than just, just him and his dad isolated. Yeah. I think definitely for me, like the concept of a rag and bone man is a historical concept, you know? <laughs> And so when I watch that in retrospect, I, I just see, yeah, they're real like dirt poor working class. Mm. So I would relate that from my background. I would relate that to kind of, you know, miners yeah. uh, because that's where my family come from. And I think it's the same principle. But yeah, perhaps miners are part of a much bigger community. You're working with exactly. other miners. You live in the village yeah. with all the other miners and their families. So perhaps I actually hadn't considered that. But yeah, they are more, they are more isolated and just mm. with each other. But the, the, the rag and bone man doesn't really exist functionally anymore but 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 the industry still does you have you know you have uh, waste waste merchants you you know you have skip companies yeah, yeah. so so where are, what what basically used to happen is they would come around the street shouting any old rags and, and you know if you'd got any any literally any old rags because back then you know you wouldn't give them a lovely dress you would use that dress mm. for cloths and then mm. when that was all completely rag, ragged then then you might give it to the rag and bone man and they would take it off and recycle it they you know, they'd pull it to pieces and then they could sell it for... It was called shoddy manufacture. So so they would use these old bits of rag as, as stuffing for, you know, for pillows and that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, so, and, and, you know, the better quality stuff, the, perhaps the wool could be undone and reused, you know. So it was it was recycling on, on a large scale. Mm. But they would also ask for jam jars. They would ask for... A scrap metal was a big thing. And, and that's exactly the same now. So if, you, if I was um, clearing out my garage, I might get a skip and I pay a company, they come and take it away. Now, what they then do with that is exactly what the rag and bone man used to do. They sift through it and they'll pull out the glass and they'll pull out the metal mm. and they'll pull out the fabrics and they'll they'll some of it they'll have to pay to scrap. Some of it they'll be able to get some money for, so the scrap metal, for example. So so that business model still exists, but like every other business model, it's now been industrialized and taken to a much larger scale rather than just mm. a bloke with a horse and horse and cart. And you do see they're called rag and bone men. You never see them collecting any bones. <laughs> but I well, guess... that, 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 I guess that's probably a little bit harder to uh, to shout. But they did collect bones. So um, I, I asked my dad about this, and and he said that they they did they did collect old bones, and they could be then taken to the knacker's yard, which which mm. was another form of recycling. So they would render down old bones. You know that old trope about taking the horse to the glue factory. Yeah, that was exactly what would happen if a horse died. They would, the knacker would come and take the body away, and they would use it to make tallow and and glue 
And so they would take old bones, the rag and bone men. But but my, my dad said that wasn't a problem for them because they always had a dog. So they would just give bones <laughs> to the dog. So, yes. so I, I'm not sure how lucrative a trade that was for them. <laughs> but my dad also said that the rag and bone men, the thing he remembered was that they would give you a goldfish. So if you could manage to persuade your mum to give you an old bit of rag to take, instead of money, the rag and bone man would give you a, like a sort of fairground goldfish in a bag. <laughs> So, so that, again, that was a good business model for them. They could probably buy those up in bulk, not particularly <laughs> well, and, and get get the clothes for next to nothing. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. St- Harold does have a goldfish throughout the series. He has, yeah. his pet, he has a pet go. goldfish in it. it. Certainly in in the show, they'll take anything they can get. It, it, it goes far beyond rag and, and scrap. They'll And as the, in the episode we're going to look at, Harold gets his hands on a nice little mm. antique. Yeah. And certainly there's an element there of Harold, yeah, wanting to better himself. He feels mm-hmm. like, oh, no, I, I find nice things and objet dance and, and, and stuff like that. Objet dance. Yeah, yeah. He's, not, he's, not a scra- he's not a scrap dealer. He's a collector. Yeah, but they are scrap dealers. <laughs> but they are scrap dealers. Yeah, exactly. In that, in that pilot episode, there's a lot of like sort of exposition at the start. There's a lot of sort of rag and bone talk where they, yeah. you know, they're, they're asking him. He, he, Harold comes back on the cart and, and Albert asks, asking him, what have you got? Have you got any brass? Didn't get any brass. Oh, there's always brass. You've got to shout for the brass. And, and it's like a little bit of rag and bone chat just to sort of, just to introduce you to the world, you know. But I thought that was quite interesting. That was quite telling, you know. <laughs> um, do you want to, shall we go on to the actual episode that, Let's we, do that yeah. we're going to look at in a bit more detail? So I chose Crossed Swords, which is uh, series four, episode two. It was first broadcast on the 11th of October, 1965. So, yeah, this is them at their peak, absolutely at the height of their powers. Now, Cross Swords isn't one of the really well-remembered episodes in the kind of fan community. It's not particularly a classic episode, but I think it's a very typical episode. Mm. So I thought it was quite a good one for us to, to look at. And there's some interesting elements in it. Yeah. First thing I want to note here, which is specific to this episode, but also generally, Steptoe and Son didn't have an opening sequence. It's obviously got that very classic theme tune. But they're straight into it. But they're straight into it. You see a few credits on the screen, but it's it's whatever's going on in the show. And so the first 40 seconds of the show every week... It's, it's Wilfred Bramble doing business, isn't it? Yeah, just doing business. And, and obviously it's designed in a way that works without dialogue and, and all that. But in this particular episode, it's it sets up the entire thing because mm. we see Harold coming back with the cart with something on it, but also we see... Albert going into the toilet, he's cleaning the carsey, and the something falls down and blocks yeah. the door. So I think it's really nice. You've, you've done your opening credits and set up the plot, yeah. <laughs> and then you can go straight yeah. into it. We know exactly what's going on. Albert's stuck in the lavatory. Did you? I, I noticed um, at the beginning that I, 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 the note I made was, the crowd's a bit much. It, the, the, the laughter was mm. peeling from the studio audience. Uh, yeah. just, uh, just Albert being Albert. You great pillock. I told him to shift that rubbish. Michael he gets home, I'll smash his head in, I'll stuff that brush right. And I thought, God, yeah. it, it, I found it a little off-putting. And I don't know again <laughs> if that's a sort of my my post the office um, <laughs> reaction to studio audiences, but it felt it felt there was a few times during the episode where you know they were pausing for laughter as a stage actor would. Oh yeah, um, and, and it well, just I love felt, that. It, I lo- it was quite overbearing at times. 
I like it. I mean, yeah. I mean, like I said, this was them at their. They were the. This was the top comment. Like getting into the yeah. audience of this must have been great. Yeah, you do get. I love that. I love seeing that in sitcoms when they ride the laugh. You know, when they yeah. have to just pause or they're waiting for the laugh, because you know it's genuine. Then and you see so yes. much stuff with tin laughter. It's awful, but I understand the, why you would use it. But <laughs> but yeah, I, I love that. It, it gives it that real live feel as well. Like you are watching something on stage, which it is. You know, the thing is recorded mm, yeah, yeah. as live, really. Yeah. And, and typically with these shows, a three camera setup like this, they'll record it as live, and then they might go back and just like pick up a line here and there. But you know, essentially, the thing is rehearsed over the week and then done on the on the at the end of the week, like a yeah, like a rep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it, it's big. You see Wilfred Bramble there as Albert in the in the toilet, and he's well, he starts off he's doing a bit of monologuing, mm. uh, like he's saying he's just mm. talking in general, like oh god, I'm stuck in the toilet kind of thing. And this is another great strength of the show that and what you need when you've got so few characters. These characters often will be on their own and will be essentially soliloquizing about something. Yeah. But it still feels natural. It doesn't feel like they're breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, I see. It, I it just you. sort of feels like, yeah, a theatrical kind of a side. And it does have a theatrical nature to it, but they manage to maintain this natural feel yes. to it, which I think it, is it crucial. It doesn't feel unnatural. I agree with you. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it, but I, yes, it didn't feel that, that they were breaking character. And that is quite a big difference to Hancock, for example, who... Not always. Sometimes it really breaks forth. Sometimes literally looking at the camera and talking, monologuing. Mm-hmm. But also, Hancock lacked a certain sincerity. It was much more self-conscious. It was like, I'm a person playing this role today, even if it was an extension of himself. And you don't get that with Stepton Son. I think that's mm. a crucial difference between the two. Yeah. And the other thing that I think this is Galton Simpson are really good at is physical comedy. And given their history from radio, visual comedy is perhaps not <laughs> yeah. that an obvious... Uh, choice but we see it straight away here with uh, albert stuck in the toilet yeah and so he decides to read the toilet paper (laughs) yeah that is really funny so he reads he reads he reads he finds a bit of newspaper with a salacious news of the world type story on it (laughs) reads it out loud and then the end of the sentence is missing the the, the dirty bits missing (laughs) so he's searching through the the rest of the loo paper to try and find the rest of it that's really funny but like you say, that is very visual. He reads it out, but but he's, it's him yeah. searching for that next bit of paper. That's uh, the comedy. It's a great little moment. It's a really cl- that I love that as an example of what they do. Because first of all, you know, it's got your classic stuff like the outside toilet. It's this horrible little hut. They've got newspaper for toilet paper. You, you know, all these things that are just going. Yeah, look, they're low class. Mm-hmm. These working class stuff. And I, like I, I think even in nineteen sixty five. I don't know. I guess toilet paper was pretty common by then. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think, again, it goes back to that working class thing. There, w- there would still have been people who were who were using cut-up newspaper at that point, for sure. But yeah, I, I like that. It really sets the scene straight away. You know, if, yeah. if you've never seen Steptoe and Son before, you know exactly what's going on straight away here. What I noticed as well is, like, big laughs. Anything to do with the toilet big laughs and i think this was kind of when you were saying like carsy and and i think this goes back to the slang as well yeah it's like things that are a little bit taboo i don't know how often you would see in the 60s people on the toilet (laughs) on telly maybe not literally using the toilet but like in the bathroom in the toilet cleaning the toilet shoving the paper down as if he just wiped his you know so that's funny it's just kind of naturally funny and because it's not something you see usually a little bit, a little bit naughty, rather than rather than anything more. 
and in the same way, their slang, they often use the slang to get around swear words. Like they'll use, um, cob- like you got kicked in the cobblers and, and stuff like that. There's yeah. a lot of that. And again, you can use that and it's a bit naughty. So that's yeah. going to get a laugh. So let's stay at the yard. Harold's come home and he's got this this beautiful antique bit of uh, porcelain. Uh, yeah. It's porcelain. It's not china. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is this is a great example of what we were talking about earlier of of um, Harold's pretension and wanting to be more than he is. He wants to be an antique dealer. He doesn't want to be a scrap merchant. And 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 it comes out in his language. And uh, he says, Golden Bennett, you do appall me at times, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. There's, this is something. Yeah, he do, they do a lot with Harold. He'll use these sort of highfalutin words, I suppose, is the best way to put it. But then, but then it's peppered with with Gordon Bennett at the start of the sentence. He can't quite get the lingo right. He's got the he's got the little he's got the odd words. He's got the vocab, but he can't help but but yeah. use the working class slang as well. China, China, porcelain, if you don't mind, China, Gordon Bennett, you do appall me at times, Peter. Don't you realise what this is? I don't suppose it's much. Oh, of course. As a lifelong collector of objets darts, to which this Wallace collection all around us, give us your considered opinion. Please astound us with a display of your erudition on the subject. Now, come on, don't be shy. Don't be saucy. I've got collected some good bits in my time. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, when he comes back, we... We see how big Harold can go sometimes. Like, he literally jumps on a settee. He's like, Dad, look what I've got. You know, I, I think yeah. for, for a show that is so kind of character-driven and they will go so small sometimes, they're not afraid to go big. And, like, you see Wilfred Bramble's trapped in the toilet. It's like, Harold, Harold. Wilfred Bramble, I think the real strength of this character is how big he can go and still make it feel real. Yeah. Like, he will go so... His, like, he's hysterical screaming sometimes. Yeah. and But it doesn't feel like it's being played for comedy in, in, in a great way. And then he'll go so low as well, like, when he's when he's trying to lay the guilt trip on. Like, he'll really go, like, ah, oh, you don't care about me. You know, like... Yeah, yeah. It's overacting, but he gets away yeah. with it. So, he's, I mean, I guess he's not overacting, but it, it, you know, like when you analyze it, he's going, "Oh God, that's way over the top," but it works. Yeah, it's theatrical acting, I guess, uh-huh. yeah. uh, on screen, which makes it feels big. But because it's comedy, you get away with that. Yeah. But that I think that is one of the apart from the writing, which is obvious, one of the real the real reasons why Stepton's Son is so beloved and, and was so successful are the two actors, of course, but specifically the way they can yeah overplay things and still make it feel natural mm. and this is a real difference between the pair like harry h corbett was very much like the, a classic actor you know he, he was you know he was, he was playing the kings in, in shakespeare and yeah uh, you know often referred to as the english marlon brando you know and oh. he's very much like the stanislavski system of finding the truth within the character from your from yourself Whereas Wilfred Bramble is like, learn the lines and, and say them in the right yeah. way. Although apparently that was a bit of a problem sometimes. <laughs> but, yeah. So there's a real difference between their their systems, but essentially they're still working together. But I think that works because Harold and Albert are different characters. And, and mm-hmm. I think that helps that Albert, yeah, is very big. He's like, he's the comedy character. He's the pantomime dame sometimes, you know, it's like yeah. ridiculous. Whereas and Harold will kind of always be a little bit more centered and a little bit more realistic, more connected to the real world. Yeah, but like I said, he can go big. He can definitely go big. 
Okay, so let's go back to the episode. So he's found this um, this uh, piece of porcelain and he reckons it's worth something. He's paid five quid for it, but he reckons it'll be worth a lot more than that. Well, importantly, I think there as well that he's telling the story of how he got mm-hmm. it and this little old lady who wants 10 bob for it or whatever, and he gives her five pounds, yeah. which is, again, another crucial aspect of these characters. You know, That's compassion. But, you know, and Albert doesn't like that. You know, he, he could have got one over on You could have got one over yeah. on her there. But but Harold's Harold's a bit better than that. Yeah. But uh, to be fair, Harold goes, no, no, that wouldn't be fair. And Albert goes, yeah, right. Uh, he doesn't push it. And I think yeah. Albert is ultimately quite honest as well. Both of them are, t- are really, yeah, fair dealers. You know, they're, yeah. they're honest. There's a famous episode called Lead Man Cometh in which, you know, someone, Leonard Roster actually plays it, comes around and, and like, oh, I've got some lead here. Do you want to buy this lead? And like, where have you got it from? And he sort of sells him a cock and bull story. And Albert's like, no, I don't want this. It's he's dodgy. It's nicked. Uh, I'm I'm an honest man. I don't want it. And Harold's like, no, we can get loads of money for this. Come on, we're desperate. So they buy the lead, and then the police come sniffing around, saying, oh, there's been lead stolen. Keep an eye out for it, will you? They panic, throw the lead in the canal because they just want to get rid of it. Yeah. And then the punchline is they come home and it's raining and the roof's leaking. The blokes nick the lead on there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so that's your classic one, but. For that moment, they go against their morals, do something that they know they shouldn't do, and they get yeah. punished for it karmically, you know? Yes. There's a certain kind of classic morality of that, of, you know, you want your leads to be good guys. And you'll see the same thing in, say, Only Fools and Horses. Schemers, you yeah. know, always trying to get one up on someone, but ultimately honest and, like, yes. not screwing people. Especially not, yeah, not screwing your own, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. You can screw someone who's got it to lose. Yeah. That's an important element, and I, I think it's worth dealing with here because what we're going to see in this episode is Harold's avarice. You know, he gets greedy yes, and ultimately is punished for it. But the important thing about Harold is, as much as he will do things like this, this is kind of a, a common thing that we, we see. He's always trying to get more. He's trying to do better. But I think it comes from a place of wanting to better himself. It's not like a money-grubbing, oh, no, I just want more money, mm-hmm. which is perhaps how Albert would, would deal with mm. things. He's dreaming of being an antique dealer and going yes. to an auction and selling his antiques and making money and then investing that in something else. He wants to. He wants to belong in that in that auction. He wants to be the mm. same as all those other people there, rather than being that fish out of water that he feels. There's also the power play between them. I think Harold has the power here because when he comes back and he brings this object d'art back and. Uh, He's he's talking to Albert like a dog, you know, he's like saying, get back, don't sit down there, don't touch mm-hmm. it, you know, yeah. all that. Yeah. And obviously that's played for laughs, but Albert ultimately is acquiescing to that. Harold is kind of like the the force in this episode. Yeah. And I think that's something we lose later on, where Harold becomes kind of more impotent. Uh, mm. and, and and it becomes more unbelievable that he'd still be there and that he's still the the, the hold this other man has on him it, it, it starts to lose its power later on right. definitely and I think that's partly because we Harold loses his power and they perhaps give Albert too much yeah. uh, power in that because the only power he has is that he'll die if Harold leaves him on his own yeah. and so that's a that's all the power you need because Harold's not going to desert his, his father I like that, and then, but ultimately, still in that same scene, he asks his dad to look at the uh, the piece for him, and he does the bit with the briefcase full of glasses. Nice little bit of visual gag there. Mm-hmm. But he does ultimately want to know his dad's opinion and respects it. And yeah. also, his dad knows the cons. His dad knows the forgeries. He's, he's street smart. Yeah. 
But 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 there's he also wants his dad's approval. He wants his dad to yeah. see. Look what I did, dad. Yeah. Look, I'm gonna make something of myself. Look. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. But do come back next time when we'll be discussing the rest of the episode, Cross Swords. And then we'll get into the uh, legacy of Steptoe and Son. What happened afterwards? What happened to the actors? In the meantime, do get in touch. We are at BritcomPod on Instagram and Twitter. So you can get us there. And do go and check out the YouTube channel, British Sitcom History, where we have other sitcom-related items. Thanks very much for listening, and be sure to come back next week. Bye-bye.